Next Chapter Podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, this is Sally Cade Holmes, Managing Director of Next Chapter Podcasts, here to tell you about another podcast we think you'll love if you love play on podcasts. The Everyday Shakespeare Podcast is the brainchild of two Shakespeare professors, Caroline Bix and Michelle Ephraim, who are equal parts experts and entertainers. It's the first of its kind to deliver real content about Shakespeare and his world by connecting it to ours in a way that is accessible, relatable, and hilarious. With their trademark fun, informal style, which they served up in their popular book, Shakespeare, Not Stirred, Cocktails for Your Everyday Dramas, Bix and Ephraim explore popular Renaissance writings from sex manuals to parenting guides and, of course, Shakespeare's plays, and discover the uncanny ways they anticipate our most pressing modern-day problems. In this episode, Let's Talk About Sex, they'll be looking at how people in Shakespeare's days were understanding sexual anatomy, pleasure, and reproduction, and discuss how the anxieties that surfaced back then connect to our current debates about control and consent. And now for your listening pleasure, the Let's Talk About Sex episode of the Everyday Shakespeare podcast. Enjoy! Before we start, we want to give you a heads up that as the title of this episode suggests, we're going to be talking about sex. We'll be using doctor-approved language from multiple centuries to describe reproduction and anatomy, but we'll also be talking about sexual pleasure, consent, and referencing scenarios that some may find difficult to listen to. Listener discretion advised. I'm Michelle Ephraim. And I'm Caroline Bix. We're Shakespeare professors and close friends who love to bond over the ways Shakespeare's plot lines help us through our everyday dramas. Each episode, we go back to Shakespeare's day to bring you some funny, fresh insights to a pressing modern problem. So whether you're dealing with a sluggish libido or a horny teenager, we think you'll feel a little bit better when Bard meets life. So in our previous episodes, we've explored how people in Shakespeare's day, as in our own, deal with the physical and emotional stressors of illness and aging. In this episode, we want to do a 180 and focus on something that's potentially more pleasurable, at least for a hot minute. That's right. Let's talk about sex. Yes, sex. (laughs) Sex can be thrilling and exciting and fun. But it's also complicated. Uh, It raises all kinds of questions about power and control because there's so much at stake. Because with sex, you're talking about pregnancy, 
consent, knowledge about your reproductive anatomy and whether or not you're using it to reproduce and (laughs) who you're having sexual pleasure with. Right. These are issues that clearly resonate with America's current contentious political and cultural climates, no matter where you live or what your beliefs. So we'll be looking at how people in Shakespeare's day were representing and writing about sex, reproductive health, and who should be controlling what with whom, and think about how that might shed light on some of our present day divisions. And we'll also look at some Shakespearean era ideas that were quite different (laughs) from ours, and uh, surprising. Like, for example, the belief that a woman had to have an orgasm in order to get pregnant. We'll get to the science behind that belief in a bit, but just think about that for a minute. People used to think that female sexual pleasure was necessary for the continuation of the human race. Wow. I mean, talk about sex positivity. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Maybe that explains why close to 25% of brides in Shakespeare's day were already pregnant when they reached the altar. Um, Not that that did not cause problems for people. Like, who knows if 18-year-old Shakespeare really wanted to marry Anne Hathaway when she was 26 and pregnant. Yeah, maybe he was like, damn, why am I so good in bed? Get it? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Clearly, we have a lot of ground to cover, so let's get this party started. So, first things first. How were people understanding the male and female reproductive anatomy back then? Now, one thing that's interesting is that most of the beliefs during Shakespeare's day about anatomy were coming from really ancient ideas, mostly from Greek medicine and philosophy. So we're talking like Aristotle, Hippocrates, and the youngest one of these would have been Galen from the second century AD. And even though these are ancient Greek theories, they're also staying kind of relatively intact despite this long transmission process. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love the way too that like nowadays, medical professionals will be reading like the New England Journal of Medicine. Right, right. And in Shakespeare's day, right. they're like, let's go back centuries and right. see what's or millennia. Still, I, right. Yeah, millennia. <laughs> still, let's just keep it going. Seems fresh. Um, Seems right, fresh. Exactly. <laughs> Works for me. <laughs> one one of Galen's theories, one theory coming from Galen was about body temperatures and sex difference. So in general, people believe that women were cold and wet and men were hot and dry. And because women are so cold, they don't have the natural heat to burn up uh, blood. So they have to menstruate to get rid of bodily impurities and also because they don't need all that blood. I mean, men use all that blood because they're hot blooded. They need to fuel up with blood, (laughs) but women don't need it. So we get our periods. Right. Makes sense to me. Period and stop. Right. This is not what I learned in health class, but you know. (laughs) So this idea that women were colder versions of men, this was uh, supporting another really popular anatomical theory about male and female sexual organs that also was coming from, you know, ancient Greek medical writers, Hippocrates and Galen. And the key components of this theory, and you have to everyone just needs to like put aside everything that they know or think they know and just wrap their heads around what they were thinking. The idea was that women's reproductive anatomy is basically an inverted or like pushed up version of a man's anatomy. So picture in your head, if you will, like a push up puppet, like these, I had one of these push up puppets when I was a kid. Like, it's like you push it one way and it's, Uh you know, a little red riding hood, you push it the other way and it's a big bad wolf. So it's like, 
but women's penis, vagina. Right. right. So the idea is that women are basically have all of the male reproductive organs, but just pushed inside their body. Imagine. So the penis and the testicles are getting pushed up inside the female body. So it's like the vagina, which they didn't actually have a word for, is considered the equivalent of the penis. The uterus is considered the scrotum. And the ovaries, which they weren't calling ovaries, were considered female testicles, which is what they called them. So basically, the thinking went that if men have testicles and semen or seed, as they called it, so do women. They didn't know back then about eggs, about the human ovum and the female body. So they believed that both men and women had to ejaculate seed to create a baby. So they both orgasm, they release the seed, it joins, the seeds join together, and you needed to have an orgasm to get pregnant. <laughs> a man had to give his wife an orgasm in other words, for him to get little Bob Jr. <laughs> this seems revolutionary. <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, men were expected to please their wives. They had to please their wives, otherwise no babies. <laughs> so I just wanted to take a second to mention that this was not the only belief system at the time about reproduction and how bodies were working and making babies. There was definitely another strand of thinking that was coming from the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, who believed that man is the only one that contributes seed. So he's giving the seed, the spirit, he's the efficient cause, and women are just giving the matter, right? So they're passive in this process. Um, so these two beliefs are coexisting at the time. At the same time, this idea of the homologous body parts, women needing to orgasm and contribute seed really did have a lot of traction during Shakespeare's day. And it has a long tradition in the vernacular writings. So going back to this belief that, that women really needed to orgasm and contribute seed, um, we are not making this up. There actually are English texts at the time in print explaining to husbands, because ideally, of course, you just want this to be happening in marriage systems, explaining to men how they are supposed to please their wives if they want to have a baby. So here's a quote, for example. This is uh, a translation of a French text, but it's still, it's by an English author, Thomas Johnson, translating this text. And it, this is, the chapter is called, What Things Are to Be Observed as Necessary Unto Generation, which is having a baby, in the time of copulation. When the husband cometh into his wife's chamber, he must entertain her with all kind of dalliance, wanton behavior, and allurements to venery. But if he perceive her to be slow and more cold, he must cherish, embrace, and tickle her. And we're not talking about armpits here. Intermixing more wanton kisses with wanton words and speeches, handling her secret parts and dugs or breasts, that she may take fire and be inflamed to venery. For so at length the womb will strive and wax fervent with a desire of casting forth its own seed and receiving the man's seed to be mixed together therewith. So... Yay! Happy, orgasmic, and fertile marital sex for everyone! <laughs> but, you know, this does not mean everyone was happy about all of this hidden stuff happening inside the female body, or that everyone was benefiting from this alleged orgasmic equality. Right. That's, this is where we get to some of the negative stuff. There's, there's a toxic side to that connection between pleasure and pregnancy that, for example, made it impossible nearly impossible during Shakespeare's day for a man to be convicted of rape if the victim had gotten 
pregnant. Yeah. Okay. So fast forward to the not so distant past. In 2012, Congressman Todd Aiken of Missouri claimed that victims of what he called, quote unquote, these are his words, legitimate rape, don't get pregnant because, quote unquote, these are his words, the female body has ways to shut that whole thing down. So Aiken's comments. Thank God. Right. right, Besides being completely wrong based on (laughs) knowledge that we've had since the 1800s, um, (laughs) start with that, uh, gets at the potentially oppressive ways this older belief that, you know, we, as we said, can seem so sex positive, can be mobilized to work against women. Right. And girls. And girls, yeah. Right. And girls. Uh, So there's a lot of mystery around certain female body parts in particular, and what girls and women were doing with them at the time, as there is now. But to take a clearer look and a closer look at these anxieties that were being caused by these female bodies, by no fault of their own, we're going to look at a popular book that came out in 1651. So it's a little later than Shakespeare's days, but it's still, these are ideas that would have been circulating during Shakespeare's days. They just weren't necessarily put into print in the same way. But Mm -hmm. this text is Nicholas Culpepper's Directory for Midwives. And this was hugely popular. And, and it goes through four editions over 10 years. It's printed in octavo format, which means the pages, it's, it's one of the cheapest ways that you can produce a book because you're folding the paper multiple times to make it small. And it's literally a pocket book, like you put mm-hmm. it in your pocket, you carry it around. Um, and he's marketing this, he's writing it in English, obviously, and he's marketing it to lay practitioners, meaning people who who are practicing medicine, but who didn't go to university, you know, medical school. So it's obviously it's directory for midwives who would have been just women at the time. Um, This is how he's imagining it. He himself, by the way, never went to medical school formally. He's a student of physic and astrology, he calls himself. Um, But that does not hold him back. Doesn't hold him back. (laughs) He wants to democratize the spread of medical knowledge, right, by writing this in English, which is a big deal, not in Latin or Greek, which is how you would have been taught about the body if you went to, you know, one of the universities and studied medicine. So he really does seem to want to just show women what's what, right? And he, he writes in the opening, I hold it most fitting that women, especially midwives, be well skilled in the exact knowledge of the anatomy of these parts. So it's coming from a a good place of wanting to spread knowledge. But what's interesting is, so after he goes through sort of laying out how the male body works, again, in these very like lay person's terms, there's nothing, he's not using Latin or Greek. He writes, having served my own sex, I shall see now if I can please the women who have no more cause than men that I know of to be ashamed of what they have, but have cause to thank me for telling them something they knew not before. Oh, oh, thank you, Nicholas thank you. Culpepper. Thank you, Mr. Culpepper. Thank you. But, uh, wait, you're not a doctor. <laughs> what is a um, vagina? <laughs> yeah, but things, you know, it's all happy and good, but things start to get stressful for him, and he starts taking his mansplaining to a whole other level. Yes, yeah. I mean, I think this is where, when he starts talking about the female body, it's like... Uh, <clears throat> Um, so one one part where you start to see kind of a fault line opening up where it's like, I am a little anxious about the female body is when he starts talking about the hymen, right? So he's laying out all these anatomical parts, um, but he gets to something like the hymen, which, by the way, also doesn't fit into that that hom- homological model we were talking about, where like a woman is just an inverted version of a man. It's like men don't have hymens. So anyway, he gets to the issue of the hymen. 
And this is becoming an issue of serious hot debate, starting in the 15th century, um, when the question becomes, is an intact hymen absolute proof of a woman's virginity? This hymen, it appears in ancient Greek texts. It's a body part they talk about, but it's not talked about as a sign of virginity. It's just referred to as like a membrane that may or may not exist. But it's during really the 15th century when it starts to become like this object of obsession for male medical writers. It, first of all, it gets called the hymen, and hymen is the god of marriage. Mm-hmm. And it starts to become very specifically talked about as a sign of virginity. So you start to see how during this time period, like starting about 100 years before Shakespeare's born, Europeans start connecting this, this membrane, right, this hymen to marriage and knowing that your bride is a virgin, you hope. Well, and the way that uh, doctor, not doctor, Culpepper. <laughs> Student of physics. Yeah, right. Doctor, Mr. not a doctor. Culpepper. Pepper, right, student of astrology, talks about the hymen is very telling. So on the one hand, he says that the hymen is, quote, a certain note of virginity. But he says later, uh, he writes later, I confess much controversy hath been amongst anatomists concerning this, some holding that there is no such thing at all. Others, that it is. But it is very rare, the truth is, most virgins have it. Some hold all. I must suspend my own judgment till more years bring me more experience. Yet this is certain. It may be broken without copulation, as by unskilled applying pessaries to provoke the terms, and how many ways else, God knows. So he's he's mansplaining that he doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, this is hilarious because it's like it's not like there was no editorial process possible here, but this is the best he got to. Right, right. It's like like a jumble of anxiety. Um, And pessaries, by the way. So he talks about this unskillful application of pessaries as being one way that might possibly break a girl's hymen. And this opens up a whole can of worms. Pessaries were a way to deliver medicine internally using like a linen or a wool cloth. It would be soaked in some kind of herbal soak. It would have like a string. So it's like a tampon, but it's, but its purpose was not to stop menses. It was used often, as he says, to provoke the terms, meaning to make a female menstruate if she hasn't been menstruating. And this really gets at a central way that during Shakespeare's day, a lot of medical writers, at least, um, but not just the medical writers, were thinking about the health of the female body body. It's often about needing to keep flow regular, right? Which tells us a lot, I think. And it was connected specifically to this alleged illness that starts having a resurgence in the 16th century. It had been an ancient Greek medical text, but kind of had lost, you know, people weren't that interested in it. It has a resurgence in the late 16th century, and it's called green sickness, right? This is when, allegedly, a female's menstrual flow or her semen seed, which we will get to, starts to build up in her body in an unhealthy way, and you have to release it. Because remember, girls' female bodies are colder, they have trouble releasing what they need to release, and sometimes they need a little help, right? It's called green sickness in part because there's an idea that she has a green pallor, she's lost her appetite. Scholars now, some speculate this is a version of anorexia, maybe, or anemia, and this is how they were talking about it. But the point is there was this concern over how to regulate menstruation. Like this is considered an important part of female health. But here's the problem. This is where things get interesting. It's not just about the buildup of her blood. This can also be caused by the buildup of her seed, her semen, right? And you have to find a way to release it. 
now. Yes. What's a girl and, to do? Um, and it's often, quote unquote, diagnosed by not only male medical professionals, but just men, uh, fathers, would-be husbands, with right. The, with, and it, right, with the prescribed cure of marriage. So right. um, but you're going to have all that hot, heterosexual, married sex, and everything's going right, to be fine. Right, right. Because she's going to release it, all that seed. Thank goodness. So here's the questions. Here's a, sort of a big question. Like, so what if you can't get married off or you can't marry off this girl and have safe heterosexual married sex, right? What's going to happen to all that seed buildup? So some medical writers, which is interesting, English medical writers, right, explicitly prescribed that you need to get rubbed by a midwife, Okay. Uh, in 1636, the English physician John Sadler writes in his book, The Sick Woman's Private Looking Glass. So this is being marketed, again, to lay readers. It's in English. And this is what he prescribes if there's a problem with a female having too much buildup of her seed. He writes, quote, let the midwife take oil of lilies, marjoram and bays, let her dip her finger therein and put it up into the neck of the womb, which is the vagina, tickling and rubbing the same. So this is interesting because what's being described here is a midwife bringing a female to orgasm. And of course, part of the implicit threat of that action of putting her fingers inside another female is that she might, in fact, break the hymen, that all-important sign of virginity. So in the 1662 edition of the Directory of Midwives, so this is like nine years after Culpepper's dead already, but clearly he was so marketable and this midwife's book was so popular that they were like, let's just keep, you know, adding stuff on and saying he's the author. Um, there's an added note to the section about the hymen, where it's not just about unskillful pessaries, which would have been applied by midwives, by the way, bringing, they're not just the only thing that's breaking a hymen. There's also a problem with the hymen. Moreover, this is not found in all virgins, because some are very lustful. And when it itcheth, they put in their finger or some other thing. Sometimes the midwives break it. I love the word itcheth there. Like that's right. so like, hmm. Basically, we're talking about midwives, but we're also talking about masturbation. Um, right. But right. basically, this whole issue of the itcheth down there brings up the subject of how girls are finding relief on their own, um, right. either alone or right. by having a sexual experience with another female, which gets us to the problem of the clitoris. Oh no! Um, she said yes. it. All right. So this I is did. what, <laughs> and this is another body part that starts to emerge as extremely problematic during the 16th century. It's interesting. It's like it's a body part that hasn't really been named so much in earlier sources, and the problem with it is that when medical writers start writing about it and naming it and trying to fit it into this homology model, right, is like, well, because Nicholas Culpepper, for example, he says that the clitoris, quote, in form, it represents the yard of a man, meaning the penis, and suffers erection and falling, as that doth. Without this, the woman neither desires copulation or has pleasure in it or conceives by it. So it's kind of like, okay, so it's like the penis, but I thought the vagina was the penis. So now it's like, oh my God, are there two penises? Like, this is getting yeah. scary. This is getting out of control. <laughs> and there's actually a hilarious factoid, I think, is that, uh, so Rialdo Colombo, who's an Italian professor of anatomy, um, in 1559, he claims to have discovered the clitoris right, in his anatomy <laughs> lessons. And we're like, pretty sure girls and women 
Right. We're pretty sure girls and women knew about it already, but okay, you discovered it, sir. Sure. Hats off to you, Mr. Columbo. Yes. Oh, thank you to you. Thank you, everyone. Oh, and to you. <laughs> so on the one hand, it's like it's this normal, like it gets like when Culpepper's writing about it, it seems like, okay, you women need this to desire copulation. But then you get like these kind of more monstrous descriptions of the clitoris. So like in 1615, Halkiah Crook, who's a physician, writes a book called Microcosmographia in English. Again, it's really radical for these medical writers to be writing in English. I can't overstate that enough. Like it's bringing knowledge and also pictures, by the way. So some of this is kind of pornographic. There's a concern that this like you can't bring this to the people like this is they're not ready to see pictures of of penises <laughs> for reasons you can imagine. But in his Microcosmographia, Helkiah Crook gives a description of the clitoris and what happens to it. And he, he writes, quote, sometimes it groweth to such a length that it hangeth without the cleft like a man's member, a penis, especially when it is fretted with the touch of the clothes. And so strutteth and groweth to a rigidity as doth the yard of a man. And this part it is, which those wicked women do abuse called tribades. And, and tribades are this really interesting figure that start to emerge in these texts. Um, tribade comes from the word in Greek, which is rubbing, and it's essentially women who are rubbing one another. And you know, when these European writers are writing about these tribades, they're always talking about how they exist in Egypt or in other other areas of the world that are non-Christian, right? and that... English readers in particular, other European readers would have recognized as monstrous kind of women. It's really similar to in our episode, our last episode on cosmetics and aging, when we talked about how there were often these women from these other countries that were used as foils for chaste, modest English or other European female readers, ideally. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. These women who are using their clitorises inappropriately, it's okay, they're not in England, they're over in other countries. And yet by bringing them into these English language texts, it's, it's exposing an anxiety, a fear about what girls at, and women at home might be doing. So tribades uh, were considered monstrous. They were an extreme example of where people's minds went when they imagined women alone with each other out yes. from under male control. Right. And they really, it's not like that was a typical representation of female-female desire. And in fact, there are plenty of examples in Shakespeare's plays and elsewhere in other people's plays, in poetry of the time, of female-female erotics that are not monstrous, of male-male erotics that are not monstrous. Um, there are plenty of indications, their whole plays, like by John Lilly, um, mm -hmm. Galatea, which explicitly shows two girls falling in love, and it's not platonic. But even in Shakespeare's plays, you'll have examples or references to girls who loved each other more than just in a way that was platonic. In As You Like It, there's a beautiful description of Celia and Rosalind's love before they fall in love with men or before Rosalind does. And that's just important to note. And also in Troilus and Cressida, there's a really 
lovely description of Achilles and Patroclus's love for one another. Yeah, you could add on Merchant of Venice, you could add on Coriolanus, uh, depending right. on how you're looking. I mean, it, sometimes it, it's subtle, but it's certainly there. But yeah. but I will say Shakespeare's plot lines tend to focus on the sexual lives of adolescents groomed for traditional heterosexual marriage, or at least, right. you know, as you're saying with As You Like It, that's where the plot line eventually goes to this sort of traditional Right. heterosexual marriage narrative. Right. Whatever love was between girls before, it has to be supplanted by heterosexual yes. love and marriage. Um, yes. And, you know, it's interesting because adolescence was considered to stretch for a really long period of time at this at this time. So it would it, it some writings will describe that adolescence starts at age 14, which is how we talk about it now when you hit puberty, but it could stretch to 28 or 30. And when you consider that most people in Shakespeare's day were not getting married until their mid to late 20s, that's an awfully long stretch of time where you've got unmarried, horny adolescents. <laughs> yeah, a lot of unsupervised <laughs> horny time, right? Yes. So we, we want in, in this spirit, we wanted to take a look at Midsummer Night's Dream, a Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a very popular play. Yes. Um, in high school. And yes. uh, Caroline, and I think you might have played the role of Hermia at some um, point. Made oh, it did you, is that right? Did you hear about that? Because oh, I'm still I, so famous. That. I'm so yes, famous yes. for my you role. You made the play huge in I mean, American high school. It yes. was a, I was a little bit typecast because she's because I was short and Hermia is well, mostly okay. short. But <laughs> nonetheless, well, Hermia again, made famous by Caroline, Hermia and Lysander uh, are, are in love, and they are the it couple in Midsummer Night's Dream. They escape from Athens, their hometown, because Hermia's father does not want her to marry Lysander. He wants her to marry someone else. And so the danger for them in this play is sex before marriage. So when they're in the woods, um, Lysander says, oh, sleep next to me. One turf, he says, shall serve as pillow for us both. And Hermia's trying to be that good chaste girl. And she says, lay further off. Uh, such separation as well may be said, becomes a virtuous bachelor and a maid. Right. So that's their situation. Right. That's like the, the standard, you know, make sure you don't don't have sex before marriage, right. though, warning. Um, but then you have the other couple in the play. Well, they're eventually going to be a couple. Um, Helena, who's Hermia's best friend and desperately in love with Demetrius, who is also desperately in love with Hermia. Um, and they end up in the woods as well, chasing after each other or Hermia. Um, and this is where you get another kind of version, another aspect of of adolescent sexuality and identity. And again, we're talking about heterosexual, the way it's described in the play. Um, Helena, very unlike Hermia, is in fact really interested in going after what she wants. She desperately wants Demetrius and she's willing to do anything to get with him. And this is actually, this is a really uncomfortable scene between Demetrius and Helena. And I know, Michelle, you've talked about how your students yeah. talk a lot about this. Oh scene. yeah, this is this is uh, like everyone cringes uh, at the scene. My students cringe. I mean, there's so many responses to this. Um, Helena is chasing after Demetrius. She's absolutely obsessed with him. He cannot make it more clear to her that he does not want to be with her. He says to her, "You do impeach your modesty too much to leave the city and commit yourself into the hands of one that loves you not mm -hmm. to trust the opportunity of night." 
and the ill counsel of a deserted place with the rich worth of your virginity. So basically he's saying, you know, I don't love you. Mm -hmm. Um, We might end up having sex because you're saying you want to have sex with me, but then you'd be giving away the rich worth of your virginity. Right. So there's there's that word again, right? The worth of your virginity. And, you know, because she's of a particular social class, her virginity Mm -hmm. is especially (laughs) worth a lot. So it's an interesting scene because it's not like he's saying, I'm going to rape you. It's more like, uh, are you sure this is what you want? Because this might not go the way that you're hoping it's going to go. So it's a really interesting exchange, an uncomfortable one. And when she finally does get him at the end of the play, it's because he's been drugged by Oberon, (laughs) King of the Fairies, because he wants to make everything all neat at the end with the two couples. Um, So you know, this is something I talk a lot with my students, the fact that Demetrius does not consent to marrying Helena at the end. Right. He, That's right. he is still drugged. And that sometimes can get lost in performances of this play on high school stages and otherwise, because it's yes. it's extremely weird and not very romantic or it's funny. very uncomfortable. Not very uncomfortable. Not funny. No, not funny. No. Um, and uh, w- one of the things that we really wanted to talk about was these types of characters, Helena mm-hmm. and Demetrius. So mm-hmm. the Helena character who loves someone and that love is not being returned. It's a very unrequited kind right, of love. Right. We we look at, I think, well, Caroline and I have talked about this a lot, that All's Well That Ends Well, mm-hmm. which is a much later play. We want to spend a little bit of time talking about All's Well That Ends right, Well now. Right. Yeah. Um, but Midsummer Night's Dream was performed in the 1590s. Mm-hmm. All's Well That Ends Well, the play, was probably written between 16 and 1606. It right. was first published with the comedies, other comedies in 1623 right. in the first folio. So it's a later yeah. play. Yeah. But we see those character types of Helena and Demetrius come up right. in All's Well That Ends Well. Right. It's almost like Shakespeare's thinking through in more complex ways, these really problematic issues about, first of all, girls who want things and go after what they want. Yes. Um, try to control over their sexual experience. Right. Which on the one hand can seem really liberating, but then also what are the, what are the limits of that? What are the dangers of that? And also what are the dangers for young men who get hooked into this dynamic right. and who might right. not have as much control as we thought or might think. Right. Um, and also right. that ends well, unlike A Midsummer Night's Dream is not a play that is often read in high school or, well, ever. <laughs> Much less performed. I mean, maybe it's it, being performed now. I doubt it. <laughs> and it's I super think, weird. Right. Super and weird. Think, and it's super controversial, I mean, in context of what's going on in our world right now. So we're going to give you a quick plot summary. Helena is the recently orphaned daughter of Gerard de Narbonne, a famed physician. She's lived her whole life under the roof of the Count of Roussillon because her dad has been the family's court physician. Now, she's madly in unrequited love with Bertram, who's the son of the Count, who's just died when the play starts. Bertram's heading to Paris to be a ward of the King of France. So we know he's under the age of 21, just like those boys in Midsummer Night's Dream. The devastated Helena figures out a way to follow him to the court of the King of France by claiming that her father has left her on his deathbed a secret cure that will heal the king of France. The king grants her any young ward she desires as a reward. She picks Bertram, much to Bertram's surprise because he was completely clueless that she was in love with him all this time, and also his disgust because he 
doesn't want to marry her. And and he explicitly says he's not going to marry a poor physician's daughter. So there's definitely classism in his disgust, but also just a human reaction. Like, uh, uh, no, she's, I'm not in love with her. If anyone cares. Right, right. But the king still makes them marry each other as a show of his renewed vigor and strength and power. But Bertram leaves soon after the wedding ceremony. And all he does, he leaves Helena a note saying that he will never call her his wife, meaning he's never going <laughs> to consummate this marriage, first of all, but he's never going to mm-hmm. call her his wife until she can get the family ring off his finger and get pregnant with his child, which he figures is impossible. And then he yep. goes off to the wars in Italy. Yeah, so et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of plot in between. But the main point is that Helena figures out a way to get Bertram by enlisting a virgin girl called Diana to help her. So Bertram's been trying to get Diana to sleep with him. Right. Helena convinces Diana to orchestrate, the, the girls together orchestrate a bed trick, basically where Diana makes Bertram think that she's going to sleep with him And then in the dark, they switch places, or it's Helena who arrives instead of Diana, and Bertram unknowingly sleeps with his wife, and she takes the family ring and yada, 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 yada. And then at the end of the play, she shows up back at the court, and she says, hey, you did put a ring on it, uh, even though you didn't know it. And you had sex with me, even though you didn't know it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Boom. I'm pregnant. Right. Even though uh, I have no proof of that. Just take my word for it. <laughs> right. So they all live happily ever after, except we don't know if they do. The play ends with a super awkward declaration by Bertram, like, well, if she can make me know this clearly, I'll love her dearly, ever, ever dearly. Uh, I, think, I think the title originally had a question mark at the end. It somehow got erased. Right. Is it all well that ends well? <laughs> really? <laughs> What as well. So the reason we wanted to talk about this play is it really, it raises all kinds of questions. I think it's really, in some ways, Shakespeare's most modern play. It raises questions about female sexual agency, consent, the mysteries and dangers of the female reproductive slash sexual body. And the question we think it really raises is, you know, is this Shakespeare's greatest contribution to a sexual revolution? (laughs) Or is it a reactionary play about the problem with letting a girl get everything she wants in the marriage bed and beyond? And does this somehow help us think through struggles we're having today about how to think about equality and freedom? Well, another question it raises, has anyone in the history of humankind done more than Helena to get with the person <laughs> she wants? I don't know about that. But any there's girl. a lot of reasons. Anyway. Any girl, any girl, any girl. Um, there are so many reasons why we like Helena and why she feels so modern. You know, she takes control of her sexuality. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the play, she announces that she wants to lose her virginity on her own terms. She wonders how she might lose it to her liking. Right. And she's asking Bertram's best friend, Parolis, this question. So it's like she's she's also not chaste and quiet. And, you know, she's like yes. asking, how might one do to lose it to her liking? Yes. It being her virginity. So that's that feels incredibly 
modern. She also, of course, takes control over her own body. So this is very different than the way like mansplainers during Shakespeare's day might have been thinking <laughs> girls should be managing their green sick bodies, right? Um, she also has this incredibly unusual gift of all of this medical knowledge. Not that girls and women didn't have other kinds of medical knowledge. I just want to put that forward. Of course, there are herbalists, there are women healers who have access to knowledge that men don't have. But in terms of sort of official narratives of who gets what knowledge, the fact that it's her physician father who passes on to her this specific cure for a fistula. And she's called Dr. She when she shows up at the court of the King of France. Like, it's a very unusual position she has. She has access to all kinds of knowledge um, about the body. And as a result, she has access to the body of a king. And of course, she has control over Bertram's body as well through that right. bed trick. Well, she thinks. Well, eventually, right. yes. But well, like some so kind of control. So what's really interesting about this play is that so for the first two acts, you're like, go, Helena, go, girl, get what you want, like break all the boundaries. And she seems to get what she wants by the end of act two when she gets to marry Bertram. And then it's like, boom, the next three acts. It's really uncomfortable exploration of like when she gets that letter from Bertram, like how far will a girl go to get what she thought she wanted? And does she even want it? Right. And also, like, yes, Bertram is a douche in a lot of ways. Like he tries to get with Diana and promises that he's going to marry her when he really doesn't have any intention of doing it. So you have ways not to like him. But it's like he's also just a guy who should have a choice. Right. <laughs> over who He's going to marry. Um, there's a great line that Parolis says his best friend allegedly says, you know, a young man married is a man that's marred. And I think that's really interesting, too, for a reminder that, again, it wasn't so great for a young person to be married too soon, male or female. Yeah, so teaching this play, this question of consent overall comes up in very complicated ways. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I always try to teach this play if I'm teaching a Shakespeare class because I do love it, but it's gotten a lot harder, mm -hmm. I have to say. Yeah. Like over the last decade as students, you know, as this generation has a much more nuanced and uh, different vocabulary and understanding of consent which I appreciate, but is definitely not a language or an understanding that I think I had, at least when I was first being taught this play back in the 1990s, like this, right. you know, and it, and it, in a good way, it's raising complicated questions. Like what, you know, this is really, when she, after she pulls off this bed trick, right, with Bertram, there's this really, I find so upsetting speech that she gives to herself, it's an aside, or a soliloquy, she says, oh, strange men, that can such sweet use make of what they hate. So lust doth play with what it loathes for that which is away. And she's acknowledging the fact that, yes, Bertram slept with her, but he didn't want to, and it was night, and he was tricked. And she's like, oh, it's on the one hand, it's like this disappointment, like that men can get turned on by a body, mm. you know, that they don't even know who it is. Yes. Um, but it's also an acknowledgement that like he he thought it was someone else. But it's, it's this really uncomfortable moment that I like to spend time with my students on. It's like, ooh, like what what kinds of complications does this raise about about right. sex and desire? And right. And, and so consent. she's she's one. She's one. So her, all of her 
planning has paid off in the sense that she has presumably, or so she claims, gotten pregnant with Bertram, etc. And her whole lifelong crush on him is now going to be, you know, she's now with him, going to be with right. him. And he yeah. says as much at the end. But right. then, of course, with that speech, she's acknowledged, she's sort of describing herself as not even existing to him. You know, right. he just kind of had sex with her body, thinking it was someone else because he right. was tricked as well. So what are the implications of this for, for both of them? She's entrapped Bertram, but to what extent has she also entrapped herself? Right, right. And it's really interesting. Whenever I've seen this play performed, it's it's always it's always played as if they magically he has actually fallen in love with her for everything she went through to be with him. Um, right. And often it ends with a kiss. And I, I just don't think that's in the spirit of what Shakespeare was imagining here. I, I don't think it's it's a nice ending. There's a reason this is like all's well that ends well, but I think it's deeply ironic and unclear. I mean, we don't, first of all, let's talk about the fact that she wouldn't even be visibly pregnant when she shows up at the court. That's right. Right. I mean, it's only That's been right. a few months max. So it's even unclear whether or not she is pregnant. Remember, she has all this medical knowledge. Is there some way that she's been able to, you know, seem like she's pregnant, but she isn't pregnant? Um, and did, he could be very skeptical right. of this announcement it, absolutely, by her Absolutely, absolutely. Very skeptical. But again, so when he says, well, if she can, and also he never directly talks to her in this sentence. Right. Um, he says, if she can make me know this clearly and this means like how did this happen how could she be pregnant with my child and also right. i think is she even pregnant with my child right the if being the operative <laughs> right. word there right. if right i mean yeah. you know did she and 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 also this, you know, looping back to our original discussion about, you know, if female orgasm is necessary for pregnancy, you know, did she enjoy this? Or is this Shakespeare's commentary on maybe that whole theory is actually wrong? <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe most people didn't believe that was true, um, because this is an incredibly awkward and uncomfortable ending. Um, and again, you know, she may have entrapped herself, you know, yeah, kind of realizing exactly. in the aftermath, wait a minute. Right. Um, and also, you know, the king is there at the end. There's, right. there's a lot of pressure right. on both of them, right. actually. Bertram's mother. And, <laughs> yeah, Bertram's mother. Uh, it's it's really like a night. It's the worst nightmare. But yes. Worst nightmare. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, this the way that this play is often performed, again, where there's this all's well that ends well. And Bertram now has right. sort of come around. Right. It doesn't mesh with what I've seen in yeah. the classroom. Right. With how students react to this play right. very naturally is something that's super uncomfortable, super right. unresolved, and leaves all sorts of unanswered questions unanswered at the end. Right. So, you know, I think there's a reason that in the 19th century, this play was recategorized as a problem comedy, <laughs> along with Troilus and Cressida and Measure for Measure, two other plays that have deeply uncomfortable sexual situations involving adolescent women, girls. So yeah, not necessarily a haha comedy. Yeah. And um, in the words of one of my students, the last time I taught this play, for a comedy, this isn't very funny. You've been listening to the Everyday Shakespeare podcast, where Bard meets life. Our producer is Jill Ruby. We're your hosts, Caroline Bix and Michelle Ephraim. Caroline is the Stephen E. King Chair in Literature at the University of Maine. And Michelle is Professor of English at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. 
If you like what you've heard, check out our humorous Bard Meets Life cocktail book, Shakespeare Not Stirred, and follow us on Twitter at Everyday Shakes. You can also learn more about us by checking out our personal websites, michelleephraim.com and faculty.maine.edu slash carolinebix. And if you'd like to reach out with a comment or a question, please go to everydayshakespeare.com. Hey, who says an English major is useless? You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Next Chapter Podcasts.